0: DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen Dr. Bunsen serves as the faculty chair of the Catholic Distance University He is also a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology He is the author or co-author of over 45 books including The Pope Encyclopedia the Encyclopedia of Catholic History, the Encyclopedia of Saints, the Encyclopedia of U.S. Catholic History, and Pope Francis. Dr. Bunsen serves as a senior contributor for EWTN. The Doctors of the Church, the Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me again.
1: It's great to be with you as we discuss our next Doctor of the Church.
0: St. Cyril of Jerusalem. When did he become a Doctor of the Church?
1: Cyril was uh, one of those admittedly somewhat forgotten figures in the Church for many centuries. He was very late, in a way, becoming a Doctor of the Church. He was named a Doctor of the Church by Pope Leo XIII in 1883. There was this emphasis... Uh, under Pope Leo on the great figures of the the Eastern Church, some of the great figures of early church history, and uh, some of the great contributors to the orthodoxy of the church at a time when it was uh, really under siege and and when the, the church was also still understanding some of these great doctrines a little better.
0: Interesting that he is indeed from
1: Jerusalem. That is, in a way, one of the most compelling aspects to the life of St. Cyril. We have a pretty good idea based on his writings, based on the writings of his contemporaries, that he was likely a native of Jerusalem, if not in Jerusalem, certainly a a native of, of the Holy Land, born around 315. And he is, therefore, a witness to the development of Jerusalem as a great Christian center in the era of Constantine the Great and his mother, St. Helena, and the transformation of what had been an all-but-destroyed city into this center, as I said, of pilgrimages, of great churches, of the church really embracing where Christ died.
0: You brought up the name of someone who kind of captures my imagination and my heart sometimes, and that's St. Helena he would have encountered
1: her, yes? Yes. We know that uh, he was growing up, certainly spent his youth in Jerusalem, at a time when Constantine had lifted and ended the great persecution of the church and was bestowing great favors on the church. And to Jerusalem, as a humble pilgrim, came the mother of Constantine the Great, uh, St. Helena. It was through her generosity, for example, that the uh, Some of the first of the great churches were built, urging her son to bestow his favor on the church, especially in Jerusalem. We know that it was while she was there that uh, the true cross was discovered. St. Cyril, in fact, talks about this. Uh, We know as well that the creation of this magnificent basilica, was christened in 335, took place before the very eyes of Cyril. So he came into the faith, matured into the faith under his Christian parents. He entered the clergy. He was ordained a priest, all with this backdrop of imperial favor and Jerusalem once again blossoming as this magnificent city of faith. And by what I mean in that is that we are all familiar, of course, with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 that ended with the obliteration of the great temple of Jerusalem. And then we had further troubles in, in Jerusalem in the second century, when there was yet another revolt against the Roman Empire, and the city was again destroyed and largely replaced by a pagan Roman city, simply known as Aelia Capitolina. And that's significant because, in a way, it hid all of the great Christian places but did not hide them from the eyes of the Christians themselves who continued to go there to venerate the places where Christ had walked, where he died, where he was buried, and where he rose from the dead. But it was only with the lifting of the persecutions that these great places could really come back to life, could come out into the open. And it was that exuberance, that joy, I think that very much influenced Cyril's life as a young man and then as a priest.
0: Do we know much about his background prior to becoming the Bishop of Jerusalem in 348?
1: We don't know really that much about him other than the fact that uh, uh, we know that his parents provided him with an excellent education, one that was very much organized around Scripture. His love for his parents and the debt that he felt he owed to his parents is revealed in in one of his very first catechetical lectures in which he urges and really absolutely presses upon the catechumens to love and revere and have proper gratitude to their parents that even when the time comes, he says, that you will take care of them, it is still nothing compared to what they have done for you. So that's a little glimpse into the family background We know that he had at least one sister and a brother by the name of Gelasius, uh, whom he assisted to rise in ecclesiastical circles, not out of nepotism, but out of the firm understanding that his, his brother was absolutely reliable in terms of orthodoxy at a time when the church, as we're going to talk about, was deeply, profoundly troubled by the Arian heresy.
0: Let's talk about his time as the bishop of Jerusalem. What are some of the hallmarks?
1: Well, we know that he he rose quickly uh, through the the ranks of the clergy in Jerusalem and was much respected by the the priests in the diocese and especially by uh, two of the, the bishops. One was Macarius and then the other was Maximus. Um, Macarius encouraged him in giving the lectures, the catechetical lectures that became the basis of one of Cyril's most lasting contributions in, in, to the church. Uh, by the time that Bishop Maximus died, or perhaps was even forced out of Jerusalem around 348, Cyril was chosen as his replacement. Now here's where things in, in the, the life of Cyril both get interesting and complicated. He was the first choice. Of the metropolitan of the area of Caesarea in Palestine, and that is uh, Bishop Acacius. Acacius was a firm adherent of the Arian heresy, Mm. and he believed, wrongly as it was, that Cyril was a closet supporter of the Arian heresy. Now, why he thought this? is it is deduced that because Cyril was extremely polite, he was always considered to be very moderate in his personality. Uh, He was not the sort of firebrand that we saw elsewhere in the church at the time. This was a, a severe misreading of him by Acacius, who misconstrued his politeness to be assent. He also thought, I think, that Cyril was, because he was polite, he misunderstood him to be someone who would be placid and easily controlled and so acacius gave his blessing to Cyril's appointment the result was twofold one acacius was soon disappointed and the other is that there was this unfortunate reputation in the early days that Cyril was somehow a secret supporter of the arians or had perhaps compromised his orthodoxy in order to get this appointment as bishop of jerusalem that we know is, is completely false. Where he had a falling out with Bishop Acacius in, in pretty short order was not so much in doctrine as it was in jurisdiction. Cyril, being named to the great see of Jerusalem, immediately entered into difficulties with Acacius over jurisdiction, who had the authority over Jerusalem. Acacius, being A heretic, as he was, as as a supporter of the Arian heresy, but also someone of considerable ecclesiastical ambition believed that he had many rights over the sea, that the sea was in fact not autonomous, uh, which of course is is contrary to the understanding of the church, the teachings of the church. Cyril defended that. And for that, and soon his opposition to the Arian heresy that Acacius supported, the two became enemies. And in the time honored custom, unfortunately, as we have seen previously, such as with uh, St. Athanasius, Acacius and his allies were willing to go to extreme lengths uh, to bring about Cyril's removal from Jerusalem and his exile.
0: When you say extreme lengths, what are we talking about?
1: Well, as we <laughs> saw in the life of St. Athanasius, the, the Arians, being dishonest as they were, and I use that phrase deliberately, in uh, their understanding of Christ and, and proclaiming him to be a effectively a creature, were willing to stoop to all kinds of lies and calumny. And that is exactly what they did with Cyril. They, they charged him with assorted crimes and misdemeanors, everything from nepotism uh, to inappropriately selling the goods of the church. You name it, uh, they, they basically accused him of it. And unfortunately... Because the Arian heresy, again, as we have seen before in the life of St. Athanasius, entered into the political realm, emperors who were supporters of the Arian cause were willing to listen to the charges. And the result was that Cyril was exiled three times over the course of 20 years. Uh, The first in 357, when he was uh, deposed by a synod actually held in Jerusalem, and then again in 360, and then finally in 367. That one the longest, made possible because of the Arianizing, as they say, the Arian supporter Emperor Valens. It was a very difficult time for Cyril because he was removed from his flock and was forced to live elsewhere. And it was really in 378, uh, only with the, the death of Emperor Valens in battle against the Goths that Cyril was able to return to the Sea of Jerusalem. And here's where the sadness becomes tragic because he returned to a sea in Jerusalem that was bitterly divided among Orthodox Christians and Arian Christians. It was a kind of spiritual wasteland because of this strife, uh, because of the uncertainty of teaching. And, and this is a lesson for us today, I think, of the importance of unity in the church, of having good teachers. Jerusalem needed to be healed, and he devoted his life, Cyril, to doing that. Uh, He spent the last years of his life, but the last decade, trying to heal what was a broken and divided sea of Jerusalem. It made all the more disheartening because he was trying to restore the spiritual vitality of a sea that included the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that was a place where Christ was imprisoned, he was tried, he was crucified, died and resurrected. And yet, even here, the church can be divided.
0: We'll return in just a moment to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app, And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. His writings that we're very familiar with are those of a catechetical nature. Yes. That it's said that even today in formation, for Christian formation, these could hold up to just about anything out there.
1: Oh, absolutely. The catechetical lectures of St. Cyril we know we're delivered in the magnificent setting of that new basilica in Rome. It was the Basilica of the Resurrection that was built with the, the support of Emperor Constantine and his mother Helena. So you had a brand new church that became this sort of heart of catechetical teaching. Now remember that um, at the, at the time there were great centers of learning in Antioch and in Alexandria, Jerusalem was a place of pilgrimage. It was also a place where uh, the the, the faith was still spreading. So there were many, many uh, catechumens who came to Jerusalem and many settled there and embraced the faith. So Cyril understood that this is an important time for the church. And what's interesting about his lectures, and this is the first thing that, that we need to note, the 24 or so catechetical lectures were intended and and are preserved as lectures to catechumens. In other words, we're seeing what the candidates were expected to know, what they heard. This is somewhat unique in the sense that if if we look at some of the the other great catechetical lectures, uh, I think of Gregory of Nyssa's great catechetical oration, for example. If we think of the treatise on catechesis by St. Augustine, both of them, are not addressed to the students, to the catechumens, but to the teachers. uh, To provide a text, if you will, uh, to provide them with experience, answers to the questions they might have. These, by St. Cyril, represent the lectures themselves. So these are important snapshots in time of how he was teaching, but also what he was teaching. So in that sense, it, it is a complete course of instruction, and you hit on something very important. The The lectures themselves give us this magnificent summary of the teachings of the church, and you could use them today. That's how remarkable they are, but, that's, but it's also a testament to the reliability, the consistency, and the continuity of the teachings of the church from her earliest days to today.
0: There's a Section two—that's a standout—in when we talk about catechesis, that maybe the church can learn from Saint Cyril of Jerusalem, and that's that those last five writings on mystagogia. Yes, essentially. Could you break that open for folks because it is an area that we really need to reclaim, isn't it?
1: Very much so. It is almost axiomatic today that we do a an increasingly better job than we have in, in recent decades in our. RCIA programs and catechesis where we remain deficient and where I think there's almost universal recognition today that that we need to improve is in the mystagogia that time after you have been brought into the church there's a a sense at times that the RCIA candidates come in they we give them instruction and then they, they receive all of these magnificent sacraments and then they're sort of just cut loose for Cyril a little, backtrack a little bit. We have 24 of his magnificent lectures. There's what's called a pro catechesis, and then there are 18 uh, lectures that are addressed to the catechumens, and uh, the, the, we can talk a little bit more about those in a second. And then there's a series of catechetical lectures uh, from like number six to 18 that are the, the core, and then there are what you're referring to, the mystagogical catecheses, which comprise the last of his lectures. Now those are built around what's called a commentary on the rites of baptism. And then they focus very heavily on chrism, the body and blood of Christ, and of course the Eucharist. And there is also a focus on the the great prayer of our Father. So Pope Benedict in, in his discussion Uh, in 2007, on the life and writings of uh, Cyril of of Jerusalem, makes the point that, as as he writes it, it forms the basis of a process of initiation to prayer, which, as as he puts it, develops on a par with the initiation to the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. And as Pope Benedict wrote, it it was a polemic against pagans, against what were called the Judeo-Christians and the Manichaeans, And it's rooted in that powerful relationship between the Old Testament and the New, in which we're seeing salvation history play out. In that sense, he's again providing a context for the embrace of the faith and then a systematic catechesis that does not end simply with the sacraments of initiation that they receive, but a deepening of the faith beyond that so that they're actually able to go out and to live the faith. As Pope Benedict notes, this catechesis, this mystagogical catechesis, represents the summit of what Cyril was trying to teach, because these are not simply catechumens, but they are full-fledged baptized members of the Church. And in that sense, Cyril was serving as their guide to deepening the mysteries that they had received during the Easter Vigil. Again, as Benedict notes, these new Christians were able to understand the mysteries, having actually participated. So they, they went through the great door of faith of the sacraments. And now he was going to equip them how to live them in their lives and for the rest of their lives.
0: Sounds like the new evangelization to me.
1: <laughs> it, it does. And we also can see in this uh, much of the work of the Second Vatican Council that and, and the Nouvelle Theologie and the whole movement to the Résourcement in particular to go back to these magnificent sources of faith in the Fathers of the Church, both East and West. And we're seeing it Here with Cyril of Jerusalem, this great father of the church, this doctor of the church, who provides for us evidence of the reliability, as I said, of the faith, continuity of the faith, but also to capture the zeal of the Christian faith in what was a still pagan world, in a world that we're dealing with now in what is more and more a post-Christian West. So there's much to digest, there's much to learn from these 24 catechetical lectures. And there is so much that we can take from these and apply them not just in how we teach, but also how we live.
0: It's important, I think, as well to remember that, wouldn't you say, Matthew, that those who... uh, believed, professed in that Arian mindset, they didn't think of themselves as outside of the church. They sincerely believed they were correct. And so I think we encounter that today when we understand grounded in the orthodox teaching of the church, which is found in the magisterium, catechism, scripture, all those different things. But when we dialogue with other Catholics, they sincerely believe they're correct in their opinion. So the disposition of that that person who is teaching, also his personality, his ability to be able to communicate, that makes a difference, doesn't it?
1: Yes, and and this is one of the other areas, and and you're absolutely right in raising it, uh, that Cyril, I think, was especially gifted in that he was, as, as I was saying, very temperate, In nature, he was gentle. And throughout much of the decades long struggles within the church, he was always seen as a voice of moderation, in the sense of not looking to compromise orthodoxy, but to reach out to those in the Arian cause, especially, who might be disposed to a proper understanding of the truths of the faith who could be brought along to a better awareness of the positions they were holding and also what the church actually taught. And one of his gifts was to help organize the, the final defeat of the Aryan cause around 381, at the, especially the Council of Constantinople, by reaching out, by being willing to talk to other people. It came at a great price because he struggled for years to try to bring about peace in his own diocese. But it was worth doing. And in that sense, too, he is a model for us today because the misunderstandings of so many Catholics regarding the teachings of the church today are grounded in misinformation, ignorance, uh, poor catechesis, a desire to do what is right but not knowing exactly how to do what is right, because they don't have the knowledge. Cyril of Jerusalem, like other doctors of the church of this era, stands as a role model for us in talking to other people. To do so in a culture of charity, with a good heart, and to understand how someone has reached the position that they're in. Most often, as you discussed, it is rooted in ignorance and people want to know what the truths of the church really are.
0: Any final thoughts on good St. Cyril of Jerusalem?
1: My last thought is that picture in your mind St. Cyril of Jerusalem preaching these lectures in this beautiful basilica in Jerusalem at a time not too far removed from the great persecutions, but also from the time that Christ walked streets of Jerusalem and died and was buried in the Holy Sepulchre and rose from the dead. It must have been an immensely exciting time to deliver these lectures in that setting. And St. Cyril had the, the gifts and the holiness to be such a worthy teacher in such an august and sacred surrounding.
0: Matthew, thank you so much.
1: It's a great pleasure to be with you, and I'm looking forward to our next episode.
0: You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this program along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax deductible to support our efforts but most of all we pray that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for the doctors of the church the charism of wisdom with dr matthew Bunsen.